Well, welcome, and thanks for joining me on what will be the concluding episode of my comparison of sorts of the BBC TV series Blue Lights, with some of my experiences and reflections from during my time in the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the Police Service of Northern Ireland. It's important to remember that these are purely my opinions and thoughts. I'm certainly no expert when it comes to screenwriting and the like, but enjoyed the series so much that I thought I'd couple together uh, my thoughts and anything else that it brought to mind. Uh, I like to think of it as a Northern Irish Hell Street Blues again. Uh, and before I proceed, I have to warn you that this episode is again littered with spoilers, so if you haven't watched Blue Lights yet and intend to, turn off now. If you have, then I appreciate your time and company and listening to my podcast and again indulging in my eclectic thought processes and general waffling. Okay, so if I begin with episode 3 of Blue Lights, we can see the dramatisation and somewhat sanitised uh, depiction of a so-called punishment shooting. In actuality, attempted murder is probably a better definition. The term punishment shooting is, however, preferred or was preferred by the respective community because it suggests that the victim is a criminal who has been judged as guilty by terrorists um, or freedom fighters. Um, call them as you will, I, I don't really care, but just for this we'll call them terrorists. Or, latterly, an organised crime group, um, ironically enough, and punished for their crimes by being violently crippled or maimed. Of course, over the years, uh, these type of attacks um, has caused surgeons at the Royal Victoria Hospital and the like to become more adept and skilled at repairing the damage wreaked by the terrorists and the recovery from such attacks may be at times improved. Usually the community, especially those who are unaffected by these attacks, quietly welcome them. Such attacks began as terrorists um, attacks um, and the risk thereof in certain community estates meant that police were often prevented from responding to and investigating crimes such as burglaries and thefts in these areas. This coupled with the fear that terrorists instilled upon their communities meant that witnesses would be silent and not assist police. Plus it was generally frowned upon if anyone called the police and so brought them into the area, thus hampering terrorist activity as well as possibly undermining terrorist organisations' attempts to police, in other words, control and subjugate their own communities. The depiction of the attack in blue lights is sanitised, as I've said. Usually the victim uh, would be physically assaulted first, even abducted if it was a bit of in-house cleaning by a terrorist organisation. Then forced to the ground, or even as they stood, as this happened on a few occasions, and shot in the knees, elbows or ankles, or a combination of such depending on their crime as it were, or it could be just one or two of the joints, or even just a severe beating, if they had a parent or relative who held some seniority within the respective organisation. If the victim did not pass out from their wounds, of course there would be an awful lot of screaming and blood, especially if the shooter's aim wasn't on the mark, or the ammunition was old or damaged. For a while terrorists tried out what was known as 50-50, where a shotgun was used, sometimes to devastate an effect. The 50-50 was termed in that the victim had a 50% chance of survival. The terrorist propaganda office took a bit of a legal and stateside um, battering after a short while, 
and the 50-50 method was put on ice uh, that was following fatalities. Subsequently, the message which seemed to be sent out uh, from terrorist command was to go ahead and mutilate and maim some kids, but use small arms, don't be too messy. And of course, everyone, including the victim, had graduated from the University of Seanothan and Seanothan. The challenging aspect of policing in Northern Ireland during and post the Troubles was that of threats to officers by terrorists. And in itself, as a common enough tactic, officer those terrorists to affect morale, recruitment, as well as the wider family of the officer involved. Thousands of officers have had to suddenly leave their homes and communities when finding themselves the subject of a serious threat. Thankfully, there's often more to supporting such officers than handing them a personal security booklet and telling them to be careful. Although I guess to elaborate upon such in a drama, which needs to keep the narrative flowing, might be a stalling factor. Nevertheless, the fact that such threats were highlighted in blue lights is to be welcomed, especially as terrorists would focus on members of the Catholic nationalist community as a way of undermining the numbers of nationalists joining and remaining within the PSNI, and also as a way to ensure that any community policing may be non-nationalist, non-local, thereby not becoming a normalised or welcome within dissident Republican-controlled communities, thereby undermining Sinn Féin's policy of support for the PSNI and naturally to ensure, in whatever way, that dissidents are left to control their community by excluding the PSNI, thus allowing dissidents to continue their organised crime gang activity. That's a theory anyway, but thankfully a lot of communities who would have been opposed to the Royal Ulster Constabulary presence are becoming more welcoming of the PSNI. Next is an interesting topic, and yet another one I was glad to see covered in blue lights, as I think it helped to ground the drama and reality. Of course, it's that of senior officers, often exploiting their positions of rank in order to have extramarital affairs with younger ranking officers. Of course, there are affairs conducted by officers of the same rank, but those uh, between senior and junior ranking officers are interesting, as there's always a power dynamic at play. It is also very common that the two people involved in the affair will believe that their peers are completely unaware of such but in very nearly every circumstance, word usually gets out after a few days or weeks and it soon becomes common knowledge. In fact, at one point, it became so common that you could nearly predict who was going to end up having an extramarital affair and with whom. And within both the RUC and the PSNI, there have been some affairs which famously involve very minor personalities and married police officers. Again, a number of these became very well known and soon became yesterday's news within a matter of weeks. In the context of blue lights, it's interesting to see the power dynamic reversed as such. As in when a junior ranking officer exploits the seedy attention and narcissism of a senior ranking officer. As I know this has occurred more than a handful of times, I can only guess that the blue lights researchers were well informed of such too. It's a nice twist though. I remember one very senior officer who was having an affair of sorts with one of their junior ranking officers. The senior officer soon became completely infatuated with their co-conspirator to the point of offering to leave their married partner for the other. 
unfortunately for the senior officer, the junior ranking officer, informed him quite bluntly and in a matter of fact tone, apparently, that they were only using the senior counterpart to achieve certain privileges of office and promotional prospects, which had now been realised through a series of ventures with similarly gullible senior ranking officers. As this was being imparted, the senior officer stood with their mouth open and ego somewhat deflated as the junior ranking officer finished their deconstruction of ego by telling the senior officer that they were an idiot and looked like, I quote, a bag of shite tied in the middle. I could fill a whole podcast with such accounts, but we'll finish on a, well, famous within the job one. Um, again, a very senior ranking officer was conducting an extramarital affair with a junior ranking officer. Couldn't say if it was the same one from the previous account, but anyway, the partner of the senior officer began to get suspicious. The senior officer's colleagues closed ranks and dismissed the partner's concerns. However, the partner was quite wily and informed headquarters that they couldn't get in touch with the senior officer, which was the case as they weren't answering their phones. In order to circumvent the usual dismissals by respective colleagues, the partner of the senior officer then said that they had seen a white van several times close to their home, acting very suspiciously, and that, this was the killer phrase, they believed uh, that the senior officer had been abducted and that their life was at risk. A combination of factors then greatly heightened the subsequent response. The location of the senior officer could not be satisfactorily confirmed. They, and both their private and work phones, were switched off. The work phone of the junior ranking officer they were involved with was also switched off. As such, headquarters had little choice but to follow protocol in such an event and the matter was swiftly handed to the relevant response department who liaised with GCHQ to have the senior officer's mobile phone traced via, of course, their methods and systems. A short time later, the department received a location, that of a hotel in fact. Protocol continued, however, as this had to be treated as a possible abduction by unidentified hostiles. A specialist team was quickly assembled, briefed and dispatched to the said hotel. The team covertly entered the hotel, made some basic and general inquiries and cross-referenced answers with information they already held. A room was identified, contained and accessed using the team's entrance drills. Well, anyway, as the team burst in, Two people quickly sat up amongst the shovelled bed sheets, red-faced, the senior officer displaying initial fury, which soon melted into embarrassment and a ridiculous explanation for their presence, etc. Again, it was a case of a junior ranking officer exploiting the ego, narcissism, and let's be honest, horniness of that senior rank. And I think I'll just leave things there albeit to say blue lights firmly hit the nail on the head in their depiction of extramarital affairs in the job. But in saying that, I think there's another character strand in the creation and evolution of the character of Inspector Johnson. And that brings me on to the depiction of Special Branch in MI5 within Blue Lights. If we uh, consider the thematic opposition of two characters in Blue Lights, that of Jerry Cliff, and Inspector Johnson, it may illuminate 
amongst other things, the writer's intention in demonstrating attitudes and characteristics thought by the writers, demonstrative of the Royal Ulster Constabulary to that of the Police Service of Northern Ireland. It may, it may not, but it's something I, rightly or wrongly, observed. If we first look at Inspector Johnson, these brash, almost combative and reactionary, when engaging with those beneath his rank. There's also a kind of standoffishness. A good example of the character's limited persona is when Constable Ellis leaves her terminal unlocked. Very common everywhere, there are terminals, of course, and not of the recent term of hot desking. And, inevitably, someone sends an email to Inspector Johnson appearing to be written by Constable Grace Ellis. Of course we know it wasn't, but and I didn't know that officers had CCTV uh, in their offices. That was another thing. Uh, I guess it must be a recent development. Uh, but could Inspector Johnson's reaction and subsequent behaviour be interpreted as a personification of the attitude of some of those who previously served in the Royal Ulster Constabulary towards the new Police Service of Northern Ireland and its subsequent recruits? Naturally, there was a degree of mute and vocal dissatisfaction within the RUC when it became confirmed and thus common knowledge that the Royal Ulster Constabulary would be transitioning, as it were, into the police service of Northern Ireland and that the emblems, nomenclature, procedure, badges, the oath and other aspects um, of the Royal Ulster Constabulary would inevitably be abandoned to history or vastly changed or amended. With many, it was a case of questioning what was the point of it all. Indeed, what was the point of all the murders and traumatic injuries of her colleagues, so suddenly appearing to be brushed aside and discarded by a process keen to prevent another micro ceasefire collapsing by the provisional IRA? So could this behaviour by Inspector Johnson be interpreted as the old guard, as it were, of the RUC, railing against the establishment of the PSNI and, in a matter of sorts, holding a grudge which manifests as a demissive and stubborn attitude towards, uh, let's call those who never served in the RUC as pure PSNI officers. Possibly this wasn't what the writers of Blue Lights had in mind when writing the character of Inspector Johnson but indulge me further and this is where I bring on stage the spectre of RUC special branch and also that of MI5 and with MI5 in the context of blue lights they're depicted and performed as what I think is the other uh, the intrusive death throes of post-colonialism on one-dimensional characters with ambiguous agendas MI5 is the plot device for the primary narrative arc, that of imagined Republican organised crime groups, drug dealing, criminal connections with Southern Ireland's organised crime groups, the manifestation of long rumoured non-decommissioning of para weapons and that other spectre in Irish history, the tout, betrayer or in modern security services parlance, um, an asset or chiz. It's significant that the first character we see engaging with MI5 is that of Constable Jerry Cliff. Jerry is written as another old hand of the RUC uh, who became a PSNI officer. But Jerry 
well recognised in MI5 is a first courteous of them, then dismissive. He knows what it means if they are on the ground. Yet, at the same time, his first instinct is to that of his PSNI colleague and junior officer. Jerry was RUC, yes, but he represents an RUC more accepting of change and one that is not shackled to its symbols and a mythical past of how things were done properly, etc. It's also interesting to note that latterly, in one of the characters uh, of Jerry, his evolution, it's explained that he was a member of Special Branch, but he thus left Special Branch because he wasn't um, accepting of the need for Special Branch to recruit intelligence assets from within criminal groups and terrorist organisations and also manage them. It sort of brings in that whole spectre again of agent provocateur allegations of collusion or collusive behaviour. Um, so by providing this bit of background for Jerry, uh, the writers are establishing that yes, he was a special branch officer back during RUC time and therefore that is why maybe he's more cognizant of MI5 um, and the intelligence community's practices um, but also there's what they would probably see as a redeeming factor for the character that he turned his back on special branch um, he left it as it were under a cloud um, and that grounded his whole career promotional aspects um, but he still um carries on um determined just to police the community so it's kind of it's kind of a cleansing i suppose of the character um which sort of uh, reinforces the empath empathy um that the viewer may have um of the character of jerry cliff uh while also establishing his re redemptive background anyway this character or this characteristic of Jerry is carefully propagated and elucidated upon uh, as the series progresses. He is counterpoint to Inspector Johnson. Jerry is pastoral. Inspector Johnson is not only dismissive of those subject to him, but also, as the character seems to believe, sexually desirable, due in part to rank, of course. The opposition of characteristics between himself and that of Jerry Cliff becomes explicit when Inspector Johnson refers to Jerry as constable, emphasising constable, um, for Jerry to retort um, that he was in the job, of course, when Inspector Johnson uh, was in nappies. Uh, in respect of MI5, popular media um, and speculation has always tended to portray them as dubious figures in suits or casually dressed, but with South English accents and speaking in clipped tones. They usually inhabit the edges of narrative, acting as a plot device, unless, of course, they are central to the narrative. Inspector Johnson seems to have a strange relationship with the MI5 character, I think his name is Joseph, who often appears like a genie from a lamp in Inspector Johnson's CCTV-covered office. This Joseph character is full of pretensions, often berating Inspector Johnson, who is portrayed as being in his thrall. Again, I read this as what popular media, etc., would call a complicit, collusive, and even submissive RUC to that of MI5, when often the submissive shoe could at times be on the other foot. However, 
here we have an image of a somewhat covert meeting which may have been written in the belief that it portrays how RUC Special Branch, let's say, conducted shady business at the exclusion of some RUC colleagues and departments, and that this culture, as it were, also transferred through into parts of the PSNI, which were not ready to hang up their RUC Special Branch reins. In some respect, while we see Jerry and his junior cohorts trying to manage day-to-day -day incidents and criminal investigations, in the background, MI5 is seemingly capable of switching on and off out of bounds areas via a single inspector who does so without even bothering TCG, that is the tasking and coordinating group, collators, intelligence, or even the chain of command. Nor is he questioning respect of such, but again to adhere to such procedure would inhibit narrative arcs as well as stultifying the flow of the story and any attendant edge-of-seat plot lines. Nevertheless, is this special branch an MI5 in cahoots and whose actions are put in PSNI response officers in peril? The MI5 character talks about some ambiguous bigger picture and let the thing unfold. Could this be a subtle assertion that, again, there was a belief in some quarters that special branch and or MI5 didn't want to conflict the end, that they wanted it drawn out. Maybe I'm seeing things that aren't there. I, I do tend to look an awful lot at subtext. I like subtext. Um, but I do find it interesting that one of the Republican Organised Crime Group characters, and it's him who says, no, stop the guns. Anyway, there are as necessary redemptive conclusions to some main character arcs. The young recruit passes his final shoot and remains in the job, gifted by Jerry's words and memory. Jerry, of course, who is murdered by characters who have no redemptive qualities and who the viewer learns not to empathise with. These characters are then in turn shot dead by Jerry's junior colleague, who subsequently redeems herself by offing the bad guys, as well as giving the boot to that selfish dinosaur of an inspector, Inspector Johnson. So in the context of the dramatisation of Blue Lights, is Inspector Johnson in fact a personification of the bad canteen culture within the RUC PSNI and subsequently he's in turn dismissed whereupon his pure, as it were, PSNI sergeant-in-waiting assumes his mantle and one, uh, I presume, personifies a far more inclusive and professionally capable and acceptable policing that is the PSNI that's how I read it anyway maybe I went in too deep I'm not too sure but as I say I like I just like subtext and that the like uh, Jerry who we grew to empathize with is dispatched but this is an example of what's called killing your darlings that is crafting a character through whom the reader or viewer may access the story and emphasise with. Then, just as they are about to eclipse most of the other characters in narrative terms, you kill them. It pulls a rug from under the viewer or reader, who will then not be so complacent in the future, as well as adds a touch of realism to the story. Jerry, along with the young boy who was kneecapped, 
and subsequently had to leave his family as well as a youth and his mother who had to go in protective custody oh and not forgetting the inherited criminality of the offspring of in this case republican old guard are all facets of our troubled history and hopefully not our future but as any realist can see the power and control of our organized crime groups is on the rise and day by day they are becoming toxic elements which cause our society to continue to decay I can only hope that those who continue to try to deliver a police service, and I'm talking about frontline officers and not the top heavy management who seem very good at keeping difficult police in arm's length, I can only hope those officers get the support they need from local government, uh, what government I guess, and not only that, but support from the community as well as important financial support and most importantly, support from the bosses. Well, I'm going to wrap up the episode now. So thanks very much for joining me. Um, I really appreciate it. And again, I really appreciate all the great feedback that I've been receiving. Uh, the next episode, I'm not sure when I'll have that completed. But I hope to be looking at the whole world of dissident republicanism. Okay, thank you very much.